It's me again. Now, Pastor Mike has uh, recovered from COVID, but he is now getting his strength back. So continue to pray for him and for the Kazaroski family. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in, we're going to do a whole book this morning. I hope you came prepared for that. It's the book of Philemon, okay? So if you want to turn there it, and you're not sure where it is, uh, it is just to the left of Hebrews. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or on your device. There are also Bibles in front of you in the pews. Today we're going to be talking about to forgive or not to forgive. But this morning, right before I begin, I do want to pray the words from Nehemiah 8.8. And they go this way. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. So let's pray in that regard. Father, we are opening your word this morning, and there are times when we don't understand, and we pray that as we do read and open up your word, that you would help me to explain things in a way that people will understand this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin just by reading through this book, Philemon. There's only one chapter, so we'll begin at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account." I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The setting of the letter to Philemon is a lot different from your life and mine. I'm sure none of us in this congregation have ever been a slave, but there are millions of people around the world today who have been or are, and millions upon millions, maybe even billions of people in the course of history on earth have been slaves, possibly even for their entire lives. In the Roman Empire, slaves made up somewhere between 25 and 40 percent of the entire population. And during the time that this letter was written, which was in the middle of the first century, that number would have been between 45 and 60 million people who were slaves. That's the equivalent of the entire population of Pennsylvania and New York, Ohio, New Jersey, Maryland, and I'll even throw in Delaware for good measure. It was just part of everybody's life. Whether you were a slave or had slaves, or maybe neither of those, the citizens of Rome came across slaves on a daily basis. Aristotle once wrote, the slave is a living tool. And Pastor Chuck Swindoll wrote, the land was crawling with these living two-legged tools that were generally considered a cut below humanity. A master had the right to control both the life and the death of his slaves. Now, this describes the situation as we're entering into reading this letter. It's about a a man named Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, and it is written to his owner and master, Philemon. The reason the Apostle Paul got involved is because Onesimus in the process of running away from slavery, had put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, probably as a result of Paul's ministry. As sure as I am that none of you are slaves or have been, I am even more sure that none of you have been slave owners. So why are we reading this letter? Because it shows us how the early church was working out how to live the gospel in the midst of an unredeemed culture. Now that sounds relevant, doesn't it? While none of us are slaves or slave owners, we all need to learn how to forgive, how to treat others, and to be reminded of how we have been shown forgiveness ourselves. So I'd say this short letter is extremely relevant. Let me give you just a brief summary of this letter. It's the shortest letter that we have that was written by Paul, and yet it has been called the most explosive Onesimus had wronged Philemon before he ran away, and we're not told in what way that he had done that, but based on Paul's offer to pay for what Onesimus had done, I think it's safe to assume that Onesimus had probably stolen from Philemon. After this offense, Onesimus then ran away, and as a runaway, had now committed yet another offense against Philemon. While living as a fugitive, Onesimus became a Christian through the witness of Paul, and then became a partner in ministry with Paul. Paul writes this letter to Philemon, asking him to forgive and to accept Onesimus as a Christian brother. In verse 5, Paul describes the partnership that he had seen between Philemon and the Christians in his local fellowship. And the Greek word that he used is koinonia, meaning sharing and mutual participation. He's describing a partnership. 
Paul is saying that all Christians are equal partners in the kingdom of heaven. From there, Paul moves from his opening introduction to his request to Philemon. Paul says that he wants to keep Onesimus with him because he has become very useful to him in ministry. He says that the unresolved conflict between Onesimus and Philemon has to be reconciled if they say that they are truly followers of Christ. Philemon must take Onesimus back, but not as a slave, but as a fellow believer. A little background under Roman law, a runaway slave was supposed to be put into prison and punished. But Paul is asking Philemon to not just forgive his runaway slave and take him back in the relationship that they had before, but to accept Onesimus as a social equal, even as family. This isn't just acting in kindness. This is unheard of. To to free a slave, an offending, law-breaking slave, and then to treat him like family. Now, Paul goes back to this uh, concept of koinonia, the partnership, and he says, if he, meaning Paul, and Philemon are truly partners in ministry and family members through Christ, then Philemon must welcome Onesimus back as if it were Paul himself. Furthermore, if Onesimus owed anything to Philemon, Paul says to charge it to his account and he will pay from it. This is some pretty heavy-duty stuff. Does anybody here have a hard time with the concept of forgiveness these days? Or have you ever been encouraged to forgive somebody who doesn't deserve to be forgiven? Have you ever needed to forgive someone who doesn't even feel sorry for what they've done? Or perhaps that person that harmed you in some way is not capable of being sorry. By that I mean perhaps it has been years or even decades since the offense and the offending person now lives across the country or in a different part of the world. Or perhaps they have dementia, or maybe they've even died. How does forgiveness work in those situations? If forgiveness is dependent on the offending person being both sorry and repentant, then there are many cases in which we cannot forgive. Yet God commands us to forgive. Let me share just a few examples of God's expectations that we forgive others. The first is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And then in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness seems to be different today than when many of us grew up. Many people today are looking for therapy instead of reconciliation. Or maybe just finding someone to blame is good enough. Put the burden on somebody else. But forgiveness is only part of the solution. Repentance is so important. And reconciliation is vital. Without repentance and reconciliation, we often end up bitter and resentful. 
Let me give you an illustration. How many of you have heard of an Etch-A-Sketch? I think all of us have, right? Probably most of us have had one, and I'm sure everybody has used one. It was invented by André Cassagnes, who was a French-born inventor. And he invented this little toy that has a screen on it. It almost looks like a tablet today, right? And you turn these little knobs, and the inside of the screen is coated with an aluminum powder. And when the stylus moves across there, it moves away that powder, and it shows on the other side of the screen the picture that you've drawn. And then when you're done, you turn it upside down and you shake it, and it erases everything. More than 100 million of these little drawing tablets have been sold, and that results in it being named one of the top 100 toys of the last century. Now, it's unlikely that Cassanius had any idea that the toy that he created in his basement over 50 years ago would become so popular. It's also unlikely that he imagined his handheld creation would provide Christians with such a powerful illustration of grace. Because like an Etch-A-Sketch, sin makes its mark on the screen of our lives. The evidence of our disobedience is indisputable, and it is not a pretty sight. But when we trust in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the blotches of sin on the screen of our lives are erased, and we are made like new. Now, here's where that illustration breaks down. We need God to erase our sin because we cannot lift ourselves up and shake away our own sin. But enough about the Etch-A-Sketch. Let's now get back to Philemon. Now, as we go over the letter to Philemon, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. It's a very accurate translation, but just as important, it's very easy to understand which is the whole point of what I'm doing this morning, is trying to help you understand the Word of God. So let's look at uh, the first three verses, and since I'm pretty sure that most of you did not bring a New Living Translation this morning, it's on the screen behind me, and you can just follow that way. This letter is from Paul, in prison for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus, and from our brother, it is written to our brother Timothy, it is written to Philemon, our much-loved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia and to Archippus, a fellow soldier of the cross. I am also writing to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Now looking at this introduction in verses 1 through 3, I see the following facts. First of all, we know that Philemon is a Christ follower because he's called a brother. But not only that, we know that he is a leader in the church because he's called a fellow worker. But beyond that, we know that the local church is meeting in his house, so he's very involved in this local congregation. The letter was addressed specifically to Philemon, but not exclusively. It was also written to the church in general. So this issue with the runaway slave was not only a personal one with Philemon, but there was also to be accountability within the church. Verses 3 through 7 are important, but I'm not going to be focusing on those this morning. So let's move on to verse 8, where Paul gets down to business, the purpose of writing his letter to Philemon. So beginning at verse 8. That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ, because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer just to ask you. So take this as a request from your friend Paul, an old man 
now in prison for the sake of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. I could just tell you, do this and expect that it would be done. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he appeals to Philemon based on their relationship. And he uses the Greek word parakaleo, which means gentle encouragement. So he's not pointing his finger and saying, do this. He is gently encouraging Philemon to do the right thing. Picking up again in verse 10, 10 through 16. My plea is that you show kindness to Onesimus. I think of him as my own son because he became a believer as a result of my ministry here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been much of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I really want to keep him here with me while I'm here in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, and I didn't want you to help because you were forced to do it, but because you wanted to. Perhaps you could think of it this way. Onesimus ran away for a little while so you could have him back forever. He is no longer just a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a slave and as a brother in the Lord. In verse 10, Paul begins his request to Philemon by asking him to show kindness to a runaway slave, someone who had stolen from him. And Paul says, Philemon, be kind to Onesimus on my behalf. And then he drops a bombshell on Philemon by telling him that a slave, a law-breaking slave, had become a Christian, just like Philemon had done. Paul might as well have said, you and Onesimus are now on equal footing with God. Let's stop there for a moment, because slavery is such a foreign concept to us. We need to be reading this as if we were the original recipients of this letter. And under Roman law, masters had complete control over the lives of their slaves. Now, while many slave owners treated their slaves brutally, others were not cruel at all. Because slaves were expensive to purchase and keep, and they also possessed many of the legal rights of free citizens. Because remember, we're talking about the Roman Empire, not, for example, America prior to the Civil War. Slaves in the Roman Empire had access to money, they could marry and raise families, and were tried in court according to the same laws as those who were free. However, for runaway slaves, like Onesimus, the situation was quite different. Roman law made running away an offense sometimes punishable by death. In those cases, the master could register the runaway, uh, his name and description with local officials who would place him on a wanted list. And once captured, the runaway was returned to his owner, who might fit that runaway slave with an iron collar around his neck, and even tattoo the word fugitivus on him, which means runaway. Paul acknowledges that Onesimus had been useless to Philemon, but he has changed. He said he's now useful to both me and to you. Now, it's not obvious to us as English speakers, but the name Onesimus actually literally means useful. Talk about irony, right? Maybe Onesimus had never felt useful, and he certainly had not lived up to the meaning of his name. 
He had been nothing but trouble until Jesus had come and changed his heart and his life and transformed him. Can you almost see Philemon's expression as he's reading this letter, that eyebrow going up when he's describing uh, Onesimus as, as his own son? In verse 10 he says, I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. Paul even says in verse 15 that maybe it was God's will that Onesimus had run away. Paul's point is clear. The man standing before Philemon was not the same man who had run away. He had been saved by the grace and mercy of God. He had proven himself useful and faithful. And Paul is asking Philemon to remember that he too had once been an enemy of God. We read in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, in other words, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. With that in mind, Philemon should also remember Paul's letter to the Corinthian church written just a few years earlier when he wrote these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now let's pick up the story in verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, give him the same welcome you would give me if I was coming. If he has harmed you in any way or stolen anything from you, charge me for it. I, Paul, write this in my own handwriting. I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Except he just did. Yes, dear brothers, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Now that Paul has explained this transformation that has occurred in Onesimus, Paul appeals to Philemon to not only forgive Onesimus, but to grant him freedom. I think it's obvious to anyone and to everyone that Paul would tell Philemon that he needed to forgive Onesimus. No surprise there. That's in line with Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. You know, the first time that I memorized that, I was probably in elementary school, and my mom told me that I had to memorize it because my sister and I had been fighting. I know, it's hard for you to imagine me having a fight with my sister, but you don't know her, okay? (laughs) She can be a real stinker. And yes, she is watching this. Hi, Linda. Now, back to Philemon and Onesimus. Remember, Paul told Philemon not only to extend forgiveness, but also to grant Onesimus his freedom. And I see nine reasons that Paul gives for this request. One, Onesimus had been useful to Paul for ministry. Two, Paul regarded Onesimus as his very heart and a beloved brother. Three, Paul wanted Onesimus to stay with him. Four, Paul would need Philemon's consent for that to happen. I don't know why I'm doing this. I just like to keep track. I'm keeping count on my fingers here. Paul, number five, Paul wanted Philemon to do this out of his own free will. Six, Paul was willing to pay back what Onesimus may have cost Philemon. Number seven, uh, Paul reminded Philemon that he owed Paul his very soul. 
Number eight, Paul asked that Philemon would do this as a favor to God. And nine, Paul expected Philemon to go beyond even those requests. So our question is, right, did, what did Philemon do? We're not actually told in this letter, are we? Well, two things assure me that Philemon forgave Onesimus, accepted him as his brother in Christ, freed him from his slavery, canceled his debt, and maybe even paid for the return trip to the Apostle Paul. And those two things are, number one, we have the letter to Philemon in the Bible, right? I don't think that God would have included this in Scripture if Philemon had not done this. The second reason is that about 40 years after this letter was written, an old man named Onesimus served as the bishop of Ephesus. That's grace, isn't it? Philemon was not obligated to cancel Onesimus' debt or to set him free, but he was obligated to forgive him as a brother in Christ. Becoming a Christian does not mean that our financial debts are canceled, It does not mean that if you broke the law that you won't go to prison. Paul even acknowledged this when he said that he would pay whatever financial loss Philemon had incurred because of Onesimus. And remember, it's not just the cost of whatever he may have stolen, it's the cost of the slave himself. Now, do you think that Philemon wrote up an itemized bill and sent it to Paul? No, I don't think he did either. But it does remind me of a story that I heard a few years ago. Now, we all get utility bills in the mail, right? And sometimes they're a bit of a surprise or even a shock. Maybe after an especially hot summer month, your electricity goes up. Or maybe the opposite of that, in the middle of winter, you spend more money on heating. Uh, But for a man in North Carolina, this was an even bigger surprise. Now, he received notification through email about his upcoming water bill. And that was not the shock, because he only owed $189.92 for the quarter. But then he saw an additional service charge tacked onto the bill, which added $99,999,999.99. Now, he was pretty confident that he hadn't used that much water during the last quarter, so he jokingly got on Twitter and asked his utility company, if he could make the $100 million uh, that he owed in installments. Now, of course, they issued an apology, and they said that there was a software error, uh, because obviously it wasn't their mistake, right? Well, here's some application. The great author C.S. Lewis said, Everyone says that forgiveness is a wonderful idea until he has something to forgive. In other words, we all want to be forgiven. We just aren't so enthusiastic about forgiving other people. I faced a very severe test of this when I was a young man. After I had been elected to be an elder in our church in California, and at that time I had probably more knowledge than practical application of my spiritual life. I was not yet a pastor. I had been working in the finance field for about 10 years, And I had what I considered a dream job of working for Chuck Swindoll's uh, ministry, Insight for Living. The only part of this that wasn't a dream job was the commute. I had to drive about an hour each way in Southern California traffic, which seemed even worse because I had 
uh, a wife and three young children at the time, and I was spending two hours a day or more just getting to and from work. My best friend at church had been dropping hints that I should work for his stepfather's investment company, and uh, the great thing about it was that it was 15 minutes from our house. So I ended up taking that job, which lasted six weeks before this man came to me who claimed to be a Christian and told me that he didn't need me or want me any longer. Actually, he had somebody else tell me that, somebody in another division. So I now found myself in a terrible position. I had no job, but I did have a mortgage. I had a stay-at-home wife and three young kids at the time. I had very little savings and probably next to nothing in the, in the way of prospects for a new job. This was a time when, as we say, the rubber hits the road in my Christian life. I said I believed that God would provide, and I would often quote to people that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So was I going to blame Jerry and hold him in contempt in my heart, Or was I going to forgive him just as God had forgiven me in Christ Jesus? I chose to forgive. I know you were all sitting on the edges of your seat, uh, but it wouldn't be a very good illustration if I told you that I was still bitter about this. But you know what? It wasn't easy, and it wasn't a one-time decision. Because I would wake up in the morning, and I would tell God, I forgive Jerry. At least I know that I should, but I can't do this unless you do it through me. An hour later, I would be dealing with the same feelings all over again. And I would spend every day of the week, almost hourly, telling God, please help me to forgive. Here I am again, Lord. I I can't do this on my own. Even though I don't feel like forgiving, even though he hasn't asked for forgiveness, even though he has never acknowledged that he did anything wrong, And even though the pastor and all the elders have told me and him that he had treated me terribly, even though he probably would never ask for forgiveness or ever acknowledge that he treated me wrong. By the way, that was 25 years or more ago, and he was probably 65 then, so he probably is no longer alive, meaning that he will never ask for forgiveness and never acknowledge that he did anything wrong. As I said, there were many days when I had to pray that prayer hourly. As the months passed, God began to do something wonderful in my life. He replaced a feeling of being wronged and bitter with his own love. And there came a time, which has continued to this day, that even though the circumstances did not change, even though he never asked for forgiveness, even though he never admitted that he had done anything wrong, it no longer bothers me. And I really feel as though I have forgiven someone who never did and never will ask for forgiveness. It's not because I'm so wonderful, because I'm not. It's because God's forgiveness is so incredible that He can forgive through me. Can you forgive? That may have more to do than you even realize with the answer to this question. Do you know that you have been forgiven by God? An inability to forgive someone may suggest that you've never experienced the forgiveness of God. Have you ever considered what it would be like to believe that there is a righteous and holy God and that He will not forgive you 
that he is committed to not forgiving your sin? Can you imagine how different your experience of life in this world would be if God were like that? Have you perhaps taken forgiveness for granted? I love the way that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it. I wonder how long a man would need to spend in preparing himself for coming to Christ. When he had done it all, what would it be worth? Preparation for coming to Christ is simply this. If you are empty, you are prepared to be filled. If you are sick, you are prepared to be healed. If you are sinful, you are prepared to be forgiven. What more could you want? What better, more significant thing could be said of you than that you are forgiven? Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we have read this extremely powerful story. And we are so encouraged to know that forgiveness can come simply between the offending person and God. The the person who has done the wrong may not ever forgive or acknowledge what they have done, but we as the person who has been offended can forgive just as you have forgiven us. Father, help us as a church to not only understand this, but to live it out. Father, as we give this morning to you as well through our offerings, we pray that you would take our influence beyond the boundaries of this church into the world, into our community and across the oceans. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.